Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And we'll start by looking at what is happening in the text itself. And then we'll move towards what the text has to say to us here in our situation in the New Covenant in the 21st century. And so let's look at it all under three headings. The first heading will be God's rest. The second heading will be Old Covenant rest. And the third heading will be New Covenant rest. So let's start with God's rest. The text explicitly says that God finished his work and then rested on the seventh day of creation. Look at verse uh, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And then verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So that's explicit in the text. God rested on the seventh day. Let's consider a few things that this rest was not. God's rest was not like a lunch break or a weekend where a tired worker sits down and opens up the cooler and gets a drink, gets a ham sandwich and regains strength in order to be able to do something else. God doesn't rest like that because God doesn't suffer from fatigue. God doesn't get tired. Isaiah 40, 28 says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. As Kent Hughes says, omnipotence needs no rest because regardless of the amount of power that goes forth from him, his power is not depleted one whit. Can any of us say that about ourselves? No matter how much power goes forth from me, my power is not depleted one whit. Frankly, I would laugh if somebody said that to me. Give me a break. That's ridiculous. But when we come to God, we're not dealing with a being that is like us. We're dealing with a being that is other than us. We are on this side of the creature-creator distinction. And he is on the other side of the creature-creator distinction. And so it kind of is hard for us to wrap our heads around, but God does not faint or grow weary. That's what Isaiah 40, verse 28, explicitly tells us. His omnipotence, which uh, means all power, means that no matter how much power goes forth from him, his power is not depleted one whit. We uh, We have finite power. God has infinite power. Omnipotent. So whatever God's rest was, it wasn't an opportunity for God to catch his breath. Whatever God's rest was here in Genesis chapter 2, he actually didn't need it. He is uh, always and unchangeably, infinitely and immutably omnipotent. And God's rest was not inactivity. In John chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Genesis 2 verse 3 qualifies what God rested from. Look at it. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from what? All his work that he had done in creation. It doesn't say, and God rested from all his work that he ever does doesn't say God rested from all his work that he is ever going to do. It doesn't say that. It qualifies what it is that God rested from. God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so 
God stopped creating, but God continued on the seventh day, sustaining and upholding. Philip Eveson's summary is helpful here. What God is doing now is sustaining and upholding what he completed on the sixth day. So God's rest was not a chance for God to recover his strength. And God's rest was not a rest of total inactivity. So what was it then? Kent Hughes argues that God's rest was one of deep pleasure and satisfaction in the fruit of his labor. And I agree with him. We see this when we examine the reasons given to Israel later on in the scripture for resting on the seventh day. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read verses 8 to 11. This is God instructing Israel to keep the Sabbath day. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates for. In other words, this is why. In six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore. The Lord blessed the Sabbath. Day and made it holy. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'll read verses 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Israelites were commanded to spend the seventh day taking deep pleasure and satisfaction in the fruits of God's labor. That's what we see in that text. Why were they to observe the Sabbath day? To commemorate God's work of creation and to commemorate God's work of redemption of their exodus from slavery in Egypt. So they were commanded to every seven days stop and commemorate and celebrate, to uh, meditate on, to think about, to take pleasure in, to delight in, and to worship God for his works, for the fruit of his labor. It seems then that what God was doing was stopping to pause and celebrate the work that he had done on the seventh day. Because if we look at the reason that God gives for the Israelites, it goes like this. This is what God did, therefore this is what you should do. Right? And so what you see is that there's a a patterning, there's an imitation. God rested, therefore you should rest. And this is how you should rest, 
Right? So if we put the puzzle pieces together, it seems that what God was doing on the seventh day was stopping simply to pause and to celebrate the work that he had done. Does anybody know the answer to question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Does anyone know the question? What is the chief end and duty of man? Anyone know the answer? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Have you ever thought about the fact that God's chief end is the same? Namely, to glorify Himself and enjoy Himself forever? God doesn't have a higher purpose than His own glory. God cannot have a higher purpose than His own glory. For what could be a higher purpose than the glory of God? Think about it. There's no more glorious being. So God could not possibly pursue the glory of another. So think about that. That's a pretty mind-bending thought, right? But God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Himself forever. What else, what, what else is God going to enjoy that's better than Himself? Right? You think God's chief end and duty is to glorify His creation and enjoy His creation forever? You think God is going to find more delight in the people that he has redeemed than he's going to find in himself, who is infinitely superior than the people that he's redeemed? Think about it. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so what you see is that on the seventh day, what's happening is that God himself and the beings made in his image are stopping to glorify God and to enjoy Him. That's what's happening on this original Sabbath day, the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2. God is resting from one type of work, creating, to do another type of work, which is admiration of His work or enjoyment of His work or reveling in His own glory. And He instructs the Israelites later in Exodus 20, and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, to pattern their rest after his. So more about this in a moment. But for now, just remember what Kent Hughes said. That God's rest was one of deep pleasure and satisfaction at the fruit of his labor. So that's what God's rest was. Let's look now at rest under the old covenant now. Covenant is basically terms of relationship. And so what you see is that uh, the... Uh, old covenant, there's organic unity uh, between the Mosaic covenant and the covenants that preceded it. Uh, we're not, I'm not going to go off on a big tangent here, but let's, let's basically say this. Um, the, the new covenant is the covenant uh, that is established in Christ Jesus. Uh, it is also known theologically as the covenant of grace. It is a, a gracious covenant the terms of it are that Christ Jesus fulfills the law for his people and that we enter the covenant by uh, trusting in Christ Jesus and uh, we relate to God there on, therefore on gracious terms because of Christ Jesus. That's the new covenant. What we see is that the old covenant, and this is just a very simplistic summary of covenant theology, what we see is that the old covenant uh, was specifically the Mosaic Covenant, but I believe that it also 
was organically connected to all of the other covenants that we see operative in the Old Testament. And those were what Ephesians 2.20 calls covenants of promise. They were pointing forward to and promising this covenant that would come in Christ Jesus. Um, but for our purposes tonight, let's just, let's just think about Old Covenant rest as uh, the Mosaic Covenant. So rest under the Mosaic Covenant. Sorry, that was probably a can of worms I shouldn't have opened, as it's a very complex subject and probably raised more questions than answers. If you want to talk to me about covenant theology after, uh, feel free. But for now, let's just think, when we think about Old Covenant rest, let's just think about rest under the Mosaic Covenant. That is, when God brought Israel out of Egypt and gave them the law at Sinai and constituted them as a nation and entered into covenant with the nation of Israel. Let's just think about rest under that covenant for our purposes tonight. In the two versions of the Ten Commandments given to Israel, which I read earlier from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, we see two different reasons given as the basis for Israel's Sabbath observance. The first is, in Exodus 20, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives us this reason. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Kent Hughes summarizes. These two versions of the Ten Commandments give the twofold meaning of the seventh day for Israel. The celebration of God as creator and the celebration of God as redeemer. That's why Israel was to keep the Sabbath day. To celebrate God as creator. We see that in Exodus 20. To celebrate God as redeemer. That's in Deuteronomy 5. Thus, the primary purpose of the Sabbath day for the Israelites was... Worship, not physical rest. Worship. Now, physical rest was one aspect of the benefit that the Israelites were to derive from the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 12 says this. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. That your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So physical rest was one aspect of the Sabbath day. However, this was not the primary purpose of the Sabbath when we look at what God says about the Sabbath in the Old Testament. The primary purpose, as outlined in the Ten Commandments, was to commemorate God's works of creation and redemption. In other words, the purpose of the Sabbath, it becomes clear under the Old Covenant, was to worship. That was the primary purpose of the Sabbath. This is why we read in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. Turn there with me. Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. Because the purpose of the Sabbath is worship, we read this. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and doing your pleasure on my holy day... And call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, 
Then you shall delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This passage prohibits Israel from doing their own pleasure on the Sabbath, from going their own ways on the Sabbath, from seeking their own pleasure, and even, look at the end of verse 13, talking idly. God does not prohibit these things on the other six days for Israel, but he does prohibit these things on the Sabbath day for Israel. Why? Because the primary purpose of the day is not relaxation for Israel. The primary purpose of the day is not just taking a day off. The primary purpose of the day for Israel under the Old Covenant is worship. To commemorate God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. And so the Israelites were to cease from all those ordinary things, even lawful things on the Sabbath, and focus entirely on God and his works. So patterned after the rest of God, the Israelites were to cease from their work of the previous six days in order to take deep pleasure and satisfaction in the fruit of God's labor. Quote can't use again. So one last thing I want to point out about the Sabbath rest under the Old Covenant is that it originates in Genesis 1, not, pardon me, Genesis 2, not Exodus 20. The first mention of the Sabbath is not Exodus 20. Aside from Genesis 2 even, you see the Sabbath actually in Exodus chapter 16, where Moses commands the people to gather manna on six days, and not on the seventh, since the seventh is a Sabbath. So Exodus 20 is not the origin of the Sabbath, as some people would like to argue that it is. But even Exodus 16 is not the origin of the Sabbath. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 is the origin of the Sabbath. The word is not there, but the concept is clearly there. And it's a fallacy to say that a concept is not there if the word is not there. Right? For example, think of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a clear example. Where is the chapter in the verse that talks about the Trinity in that term, monology? It's not there. But the concept is clearly there in Scripture. And so what we see is that the word uh, Sabbath is not in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, but the concept is clearly there. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Commenting on this verse, John Currid says, the Hebrew words, the Hebrew verb translated he rested is, and I, I'm sorry if any of you are Hebrew scholars, I'm probably not going to pronounce this right, but I'm just going to say sabbat. S-A-B-A-T, with some various uh, notations on the top and bottom of some of those letters. All right? It literally means to cease or desist or end. And from it derives the noun Sabbath, which signifies the Sabbath day later in Scripture. Thus, it is here at creation that we see the general principles for Sabbath keeping being established. It is a creation ordinance. So there's a verb called Sabbath, which is there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. There's God making the seventh day holy, and there's God resting from his labors, Right? Together with Exodus 20, verse 11, which says to Israel, you should observe the Sabbath because on the seventh day God rested. 
which makes a very, very clear connection between Exodus 20 and Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. It is very, very hard to argue. Impossible, I would say, that the Sabbath is not instituted in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. And so we know uh, that what is instituted at creation transcends the Old Covenant. That is, it's bigger than the Old Covenant. It was in existence before the Old Covenant and is still in existence after the Old Covenant. So, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, uh, Paul argues, quote, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For, this is Paul's argumentation, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. End quote. I'm not trying to raise an issue about complementarian relationships tonight. That's for another night. But I just want you to see Paul's argumentation. Paul says, no, no, no. Uh, women can't be leaders in the church because at creation, God set it up differently. You see? So what we can't do is say that... Uh, Specific instructions are for a specific people in a specific time and place if they were instituted at creation. Because Paul's argument is if it was instituted in creation, then it applies to everybody everywhere at all times. And that you can't get away from that. So whatever God wove into the fabric of this world at creation needs to be worked out in every context, in every culture around the world in um, uh, every place so long as the world exists. So, just as the people that Timothy were ministering to could not argue that women could now teach in the church because they weren't under the Old Covenant anymore, Paul says, no, that's not valid. You can't say that just because we're not under the Old Covenant anymore now women can teach in the church because actually that prohibition goes way back to creation. By that same line of argumentation, you can't argue that we're not to keep a Sabbath anymore because we're not under the old covenant anymore. Because Paul would say, wait, not so fast, because the Sabbath was actually instituted at creation. You see? So, since Sabbath is rooted in creation and not in the Old Covenant, not in the Mosaic Covenant. It is not just for Israel, but it is for all people everywhere. So let's now talk about New Covenant rest, or New Covenant Sabbath, and see how this creation institution applies to us. The greatest creative work up to the point that God gave the Ten Commandments was the original creation. It's hard to do something more creative than creating the world, right? And the greatest redemptive work up to that point when God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel was the exodus from Egypt. Right? So Israel was to remember and celebrate God's work as the creator and redeemer on the seventh day. And the works specifically that they were to have in mind were the works of the original creation and the works of redemption from Egypt. Right? That's what we see in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. But in Christ Jesus, what we see 
is a new creation that is better than the first. What we see in Scripture is that the end is actually better than the beginning. Christ is not bringing us back to Eden. Christ is bringing us forward to something far more glorious. Some have said that the history of the world is not U-shaped. In other words, it doesn't start here and then go down to sin and then come back up to where it was. But the history of the world is J-shaped. That it starts here and it goes down because of sin. And then Christ takes it here. That God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But in eternity to come, God will dwell in our hearts and face to face with us in our presence forever. Revelation chapter 21. We have a greater intimacy actually in the age to come than Adam even had with God in the garden. And that's just one example. But the point is that the new creation is better than the first creation. And in Christ Jesus, we see a redemption that is better than the redemption from slavery in Egypt. Because what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? So let's think about a slave who came out of Egypt but did not trust in God's promises of the Messiah and perished in the wilderness and went to hell. The slavery, the exodus from slavery in Egypt was great. I'm not knocking that. It was a wonderful thing that God did. But isn't the exodus from slavery to sin that much greater? That God is pulling us out of our condemnation and making us a people and bringing us through the wilderness of this life until he gets us all the way home to our promised land with him forever in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm just saying, isn't that much better? That's the the portrait that the scripture paints, is that we actually see a greater exodus happening in Christ Jesus than we saw happen under Moses. In fact, it's actually really interesting, and I'm I'm not proficient in the biblical languages, so I'm uh, taking this second hand, but this point has been clearly uh, defended by scholars of all stripes. At the transfiguration, when... Uh, Moses and Elijah appear to talk with Jesus. You know what it says that they were talking about in the Greek? The exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The Greek word, exodus. So Christ's exodus that he accomplished at Jerusalem is greater than the exodus from Egypt. So what we see is that there's a new creation that's better than the original creation. And there's a redemption that comes in Christ Jesus, which is better than the redemption uh, from slavery in Egypt. So, in the New Covenant, keeping with the goal of the day, which is worship for God, worship to God for creation and redemption, we commemorate the new creation and our redemption from slavery and sin. It would be backwards and it would be regressive for us to keep the seventh day Sabbath in honor of the first creation, now fallen, when Christ has come to make all things new. And it would be regressive for us and backwards for us to keep the seventh day Sabbath in honor of the exodus from Egypt when Christ accomplished a better exodus at Jerusalem. It would be backwards and regressive to keep the seventh day Sabbath as if Christ had never come. And so we continue to honor the principle of worshiping one day in seven, but now we do it on the first day of the week instead of the seventh to reflect 
that Christ and his accomplished work are the focus of our worship and praise at this stage of redemptive history. And according to the instruction of the inspired apostles. The first question that we should answer in thinking about New Covenant rest is this. Should we keep the Sabbath in the New Covenant? And the answer is yes. Biblically, we should. We've already seen that it's part of God's design for creation. Just as male leadership in the church is in 1 Timothy 2. And both Jesus and the apostles teach us that the principles of the Ten Commandments are still applicable to believers under the New Covenant. You can look at Luke 18 and the verses that follow, and Romans 13, uh, Luke 18, verse 18, and the verses that follow, and Romans 13, verse 8, and the verses that follow, to help you get off the ground on that study. But yes, we should keep the Sabbath in the New Covenant. But how should we keep it? Exactly as the Israelites did? No. In a way that reflects God's new covenant works of new creation and redemption from sin in Christ Jesus. The apostles uniformly taught the early church to worship on Sundays, as is confirmed by church history. Uh, If you go back and study, all churches, all Christian churches, have always worshipped on Sundays. That was the uniform apostolic practice. And even in scripture, we see clues pointing us in this direction. How many times does the scripture mention Wednesday? How many times does the scripture mention Thursday? How many times does the scripture mention, uh, let's say, Monday? But eight times in the New Testament, the scripture mentions Sunday. Right? That's not insignificant. The first day of the week is mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Matthew 28, 1. Mark 16, 2. Mark 16, 9, Luke 24, 1, John 20, verse 1, John 20, verse 19, Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. The first six of those mark Christ's resurrection and post-resurrection appearances. And the last two mark church services. The first day of the week was well known by the moniker, the Lord's Day, by the time that John wrote Revelation. In fact, it was so well known by that designation that John just says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 without actually mentioning explicitly what that day was. And again, scholars of all stripes agree that was Sunday. So we see from biblical theology that we should keep the Sabbath in the New Covenant. And we see clues in Scripture and from church history and from biblical theology that we should no longer keep it on the seventh day, but on the first, in order to reflect that Christ and his accomplished work are the focus of our worship and praise at this stage in redemptive history. Now, some will object to the idea of Sabbath keeping at all under the new covenant uh, on various grounds. In fact, I did even a few years ago. Uh, It was a process for me of coming to this point, this perspective. So let's try to clear away some objections that are often raised. Some will say, well, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. And so to try to put us, uh, to try to tell us to keep the Sabbath is legalistic. Because we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. You're trying to put people back under the law. Well, as we've already established, the origin of the Sabbath is actually not in Exodus 20, is it? But it's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So we're not actually trying to put anyone back under 
the Mosaic Covenant. What we're trying to simply recognize is that some of the things that were commanded under the Mosaic Covenant were already expected of all people everywhere before the Mosaic Covenant. And even after the Mosaic Covenant has become obsolete, are still expected of all people everywhere. For example, nobody, nobody raises that argument when we say you shouldn't murder. Right? Nobody says, well, you're, you're trying to put us back under the Mosaic Covenant. No, no we're not, because we, we understand, we get that before the Mosaic Covenant, before Exodus 20, murder was wrong. When Cain killed Abel, it was evil. Right? So we, don't, we recognize that the origin, uh, for, for example, of the prohibition against murder in the Ten Commandments actually wasn't, didn't originate in the Ten Commandments. And so it is with the Sabbath. What we see, what our belief is, is that um, the Scripture doesn't teach that we are under the Ten Commandments uh, as the Ten Commandments in the hand of Moses as part of the Mosaic Covenant. All we're trying to say is that all of the things that are in the Ten Commandments are the things that God has always expected of all people everywhere, in every culture, in every nation, from the beginning of creation until Christ returns in His second coming, including the Sabbath. That's all we're trying to say. So we're not trying to put anyone under the Mosaic Covenant in any sense. An uh, objection that comes along with that is um, that the Reformed distinction between the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law is invalid because the Mosaic Covenant comes to us as one piece and not as a tripartite covenant. And again, we can, in some sense, we can grant that point and say, yes, we're not trying to say that you're partly under the Mosaic Covenant, the moral part, but you're no longer under the civil part or the ceremonial part. That's not what Reformed theologians mean when they say that we can uh, distinguish between the various types of law in the Mosaic Covenant. All we're saying is there were laws that were given specifically to the civil state of Israel. And those are what we call the civil laws. There were laws that were given specifically um, as ceremonies to the nation of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. And that's what we call the moral or the ceremonial law. But then we were saying that there are laws which are moral, uh, morally binding for all people everywhere including the Old Covenant Israelites, but also everyone else who has ever lived. And that's what we Reformed theologians designate the moral law. So we're not at all, in any sense, trying to put anyone under the Mosaic Covenant. We're just trying to articulate that there are some things that predated the Mosaic Covenant and were continued to be valid under the Mosaic Covenant and continue to be valid after the Mosaic Covenant. That's all we're saying. And then there's Colossians 2.16. Uh, turn there for a minute. This was a big hang-up for me for a while. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So here's a hermeneutical principle. You can't, on the basis of... Um, philosophical conclusions drawn from one premise after another overturn the plain, explicit teaching of Scripture. If the Scripture plainly and explicitly teaches something, you shouldn't try to philosophize why the Scripture doesn't actually mean what it plainly says. So Colossians 2, 16 and 17 uh, was a big hang-up for me as I was studying this subject 
and I think it's still a big hang up for a lot of people. Um, here's, I think, how we can resolve this biblically. That phrase, uh, in regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, uh, I think the ESV actually has not translated this particularly well. It should say festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Um, but in any case, what's actually there in the Greek appears several times in the Old Testament. And it always refers to the Jewish calendar in its totality. And so what uh, the Apostle Paul is saying in this section is that let no one pass judgment on you in questions of Jewish dietary laws or the Jewish calendar. You see, that's the sense of that verse in chapter 2 and verse 16. Let's come at it from another angle. Right? And I've used this uh, illustration before, so some of you have, have heard it, but let's just imagine that you're sleeping one night and then you hear a whole bunch of garbage cans falling over in the alley next to your house. And you open your window and there I am, out stumbling around, drunk as a skunk. And you come down and say, John, what are you doing? I say, don't judge me in matters of drink. It says in Colossians 2.16, don't judge me in matters of drink. Right? Those are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? What would you say? You would say, John, that's terrible hermeneutics. Go to bed and let me make you some coffee in the morning and you need to sober up and repent. Right? Because what we can see is that in this passage, clearly, right? And that, I think that illustration helps make it clear. What the apostle is not doing is saying that there's nothing morally relevant whatsoever about anything you do with food or anything you do with drinks or anything you do with festivals or anything you do with new moons or anything you do with Sabbaths, right? That, that clearly can't be what Paul means as the counter example I just gave demonstrates, right? And so Paul has obviously a narrower perspective in mind and what is in mind as he looks uh, at this section uh, is that we are, we are not under the Jewish dietary laws and we are not under the Jewish calendar. And nobody should try to put us under Jewish dietary laws or the Jewish calendar. Right? And so a better interpretation of this verse is don't let anyone pass judgment on you in, que in questions of Yom Kippur or Hanukkah or something like that. Right? Because those things are particularly, specifically Jewish. He's not talking about the Sabbath that was instituted in creation, which is not specifically Jewish. You understand? And he's saying, don't let anyone judge you about eating shellfish on a matter of food or drink like that, which is particularly Jewish. But he's not saying that gluttony is now wide open in the New Covenant and drunkenness is now wide open in the New Covenant. Right? What he's saying is don't let anyone judge you on specifically Jewish food and drink issues and specifically Jewish calendar issues. Right? So that's what Colossians 2, 16 and 17 is uh, demonstrating. Then there's Hebrews 4, another objection that is raised against Sabbath keeping in the New Covenant. Um, it's talking about the promise of entering God's rest. And it talks about how... Uh, those who left Egypt led by Moses in chapter 3, verse 16, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 16, failed to enter God's rest because of unbelief in chapter 3, verse 19. Um, 
But then it says in chapter 4, verse 1, that the promise of entering God's rest still stands. And then in chapter three, chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For we who have believed enter that rest. And so the argument is, when we believe in Christ Jesus, we have entered God's rest. Right? And so uh, resting in Christ is our Sabbath rest. So it's not about keeping a day anymore, but it's about resting in Christ. But what we see in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11 is that we actually haven't entered the rest just yet. It says in chapter 4 verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Now go back and look carefully at chapter 4 verse 3 again. It doesn't say, for we who have believed have entered that rest. It says, we who believe, we who have believed enter that rest. So it is drawing a line between believing and entering the rest. But the rest that is held out for us is still actually a future rest in Hebrews chapter 4. And you see that in verse 11 because we're exhorted as Christians to strive to enter that rest, implying that we haven't entered that rest already. <clears throat> so, what we see then is um, in Hebrews 4 that there is an argumentation that goes like this. Moses didn't give them rest. Uh, Joshua didn't give them rest. But Christ Jesus will give them rest. That's the argument that happens in Hebrews chapter 4. Right? And so we who believe in Christ not have entered that rest, but will enter that rest. You see, that's what's happening in Hebrews chapter 4. Um, I just want to give you a brief exposition of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10. Um, the ESV has tried to do us a favor by trying to make this clearer. But I don't think that they actually have. Um, verse 10 actually says this in the Greek. For he who has entered his rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You probably need to look at your Bibles while I say that to understand the difference, what I'm saying. For he who has entered his rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This might be hard to do without a whiteboard. And a marker, but I just want to try to show you something. The ESV assumes that the first he in chapter 10 is referring to Christians. And so it translates it as whoever to try to make it a little bit clearer. Um, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the way that the ESV kind of translates it here. It makes it seem like it's saying, for Christians who have entered God's rest have also rested from their works as God rested from his work of creation. But do you see a kind of weird problem there? It's comparing our works of self-righteousness to God's work of creation, if that's the correct interpretation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if we read it like that, it goes... For essentially, for the Christian who has entered God's rest has also rested from his own self-justifying works 
as God did rest from his work of creation. Do you see? That's kind of the sense that this ESV translation gives us. Right? Which is kind of a weird comparison for the author of Hebrews to make, right? Let me give you an alternative uh, translation, which I think is better. Um, And remember, it says, For he who has entered his rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So the question is, who are all these he's and his's? Right? But let me try to give you an alternative interpretation that many theologians find more persuasive and that I think is better. For Christ, who has entered his rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. And then what you see is the comparison is God's works of the original creation and Christ's work of the new creation. Do you see? That actually makes a lot more sense. The comparison fits a lot better. So if the he's and the his's refer to Christ instead of the believer, that actually makes Hebrews 4 make way more sense. And so then 9, 10, and 11 read like this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For Christ, who has entered his rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. In other words, that is the rest of Christ. Doesn't that make a lot more sense? To me, that makes a lot more sense. And so this, the um, idea here then is that just as um, the uh, Sabbath rest in the Old Covenant was to commemorate God's works of creation and redemption, uh, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God in the New Covenant as we commemorate Christ's finished work because now he has rested from his works as God did from his. And that would actually be the argumentation of Hebrews 4, which I think is better. So anyway, those are a few objections that people raise to the idea of Sabbath keeping under the new covenant. And I think uh, I've tried to be as fair as possible. And I think uh, we've dealt with them persuasively. At least I'm persuaded Um, that the scripture actually does teach us that there does, in fact, remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God, as Hebrews 4 verse 9 teaches us, which actually is the first day of the week, that we're to gather and commemorate Christ's finished work that he's rested from of new creation and redemption. So there does, in fact, remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God every Sunday. This is new covenant rest. So three things about this new covenant rest. It is as holy as the old covenant rest. The gospel is not this. The gospel is not that God came to set us free from the demands of the law so that we can now do whatever we want in Christ. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God came to set us free from the curse of the law so that we would no longer perish when we disobey God's law and do whatever we want. And Christ gave himself, as Titus 3.14 says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God's law is not to be scorned under the new covenant now that we are covenantally freed 
from the law's penalty. Rather, God's law is to be like railroad tracks for us in the New Covenant. The law has no power in and of itself to move us to obedience, to help us, uh, to, to make us single-handedly grow in holiness and in sanctification. The same way that railroad tracks don't have power to move a train. But regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just as the railroad tracks are the path along which the train travels, the law of God is the path along which a regenerated person indwelt by the Holy Spirit travels in his sanctification. And so, it's not legalistic um, to say that we should try to obey God's law, having been justified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, that now we should try to please God by uh, obeying Him and submitting to Christ our King. There's nothing legalistic about that. Uh, The New Covenant Sabbath day then is just as holy as the Old Covenant Sabbath day. Which means this, that though we are not stoned for Sabbath breaking anymore, it actually wouldn't be wrong for us to be stoned for Sabbath breaking anymore. If you catch my drift. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we impose harsher uh, capital penalty, capital punishment laws in Canada for Sabbath breaking. That's not my point. But my point is simply this. The wages of sin is death. That's just as true in the New Covenant as it was in the Old. right? And so if God doesn't mandate that we take Sabbath breakers outside and stone them, it doesn't actually mean that Sabbath breaking is any less sinful. Right? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Uh, Let us not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Breaking the Sabbath by breaking that explicit commandment is sinful. And it's no less sinful than Sabbath breaking was under the Old Covenant when people were to be taken outside the camp and stoned. You see what I mean? Let me just make a little application here. It's called the Lord's Day, not the Lord's Morning or the Lord's Evening. Right? And I realize this is the evening service, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir. Right? But we should really be setting aside the day. Not just a portion of the day, but the day for the worship of God. That this is a day that the Lord has set aside for His worship. And that we are to celebrate the works of creation and redemption uh, that God has accomplished in Christ Jesus. Beginning to make all things new and and, uh, redeeming us from our slavery to sin. So the Lord's Day. Not the Lord's morning, not the Lord's evening, the Lord's day. It also means the fact that the new covenant Sabbath is just as holy as the old covenant Sabbath. It's not that God has just relaxed his law now under the new covenant. Remember, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that now the law uh, doesn't apply to us anymore in the new covenant. Right? The gospel is that now the curse of the law will not be meted out to us because it has been meted out to Christ on the cross. But the imperatives of the law still apply to us. So what this also means is that we should obey the directives that we read in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. You remember that? That we should turn back 
our foot from the Sabbath, from doing our pleasure on God's holy day. We should call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day honorable, the holy day of the Lord honorable. We should honor it by not going our own ways, by not seeking our own pleasure or talking idly, but we shall take delight in the Lord. And we have this promise here that then he will make us ride on the heights of the earth. He will feed us with the heritage of Jacob, our father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That there is a spiritual blessing attached to Sabbath keeping. That we ought to be consecrating ourselves on Sundays to the worship of God. So again, I just want to make a couple of little applications here. Uh, We shouldn't be engaging in business and commerce on the Sabbath day. Um, There's a couple exceptions that the Lord Jesus teaches us in the Gospels. One is acts of mercy. Right? So Jesus heals people. Right? And the Pharisees are angry like... They actually say to this one guy, there are six other days on which to be healed. Don't come to be healed on the Sabbath. Right? And Jesus is like, come on, guys. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Right? And they don't answer him. And then they actually go and plot to kill Jesus. Right? Talk about hypocrisy. Right? So mercy, doing acts of mercy are an exception that Jesus gives us. And then um, there's also works of necessity is another exception that Jesus gives us. Uh, He talks about uh, pulling our ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath day, which you could think about as a work of mercy. Uh, But I think also it's a work of necessity, that an ox is a livelihood, and that if we don't deal with our ox in the ditch, we're going to, it may die or it may get injured, and our livelihood is going to be at stake. So think about something like this morning, uh, uh, we're staying with the Powells this month, and a water main broke under their driveway. And the driveway caved in and uh, the city of Toronto came to repair it. Let's just say, uh, let's just say that there had been flooding in their basement. There wasn't, but let's just say that there was, right? And that uh, all of their, uh, uh, their whole basement was being flooded out. Staying home to pump water out of your basement might be a necessity. You understand what I mean? Right? But we shouldn't be just engaging in business and commerce. On the Sabbath. It wasn't right under the old covenant. They were to consecrate the whole day for the worship of God. And remember, the gospel is not that God has relaxed his law uh, so that its demands no longer apply to us. The gospel is that Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law for us so that we're no longer under its curse. That Christ has received the penalty uh, of the law on our behalf so that we no longer have to bear it ourselves. But if it wasn't right to engage in business and commerce in the old covenant, because the whole day was to be set aside for the worship of God. So it's not right in the new covenant. Right? So, uh, and then you see about uh, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, not only are the heads of the household to take the day off, but their manservants and their maidservants, right? The sojourner within their gates, everybody's to have a break, right? So that everybody can worship God, right? So when we do business and commerce, on the Sabbath day, what we're doing is we ourselves are not honoring the Lord's day by consecrating it entirely to him. At least our hearts and our minds have been distracted. Um, but also we're making other people work on the Lord's day uh, when they should be free to go to church. Now, whether they go to church or not is really besides the point. Same as what the sojourner within their gates does on the seventh day in Israel 
is really besides the point. Maybe he goes out and worships Molech. But nevertheless, the point is that he is to be free to worship Yahweh. That we are not to say, well, we're going to worship Yahweh, but the sojourner can work. You see? The whole idea is that we are setting aside the day and that we're encouraging others to set aside the day and they bear responsibility for what they do, right? So one thing that we should think about uh, is, is, I think, just stopping for a coffee on the way in, right? Now, we've never put anyone under church discipline for stopping and buying a coffee on the way in, but we should think about it, right? That is, are we really honoring the Lord's Day um, by making the McDonald's folk or the Tim Hortons folk uh, be engaged in their employment on Sundays instead of being here, right? Or we could think about um, uh, our own vocations, right? Some of us uh, work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, so it's not an issue, but some of us don't, right? And the idea of saying no to an employer or letting a project wait till Monday or whatever may be a little bit foreign to us. But again, if we, if we remember that the gospel is not God relaxing the demands of his law and saying now it doesn't matter in the new covenant, it's a free-for-all, but we just recognize that the law is still to guide us, even though we're free from its sanction and its, its penalty, we should realize that we're still responsible to set aside the whole day for the worship of God. Right? And so we should uh, refrain from engaging in business and commerce. And we know that God's law is not a matter of mere outward conformity, right? Like if we just don't kill someone, but we actually just despise them, is that okay in God's eyes? No, we know that God's law uh, requires our whole hearts, right? So even if we don't actually outwardly break the Sabbath day, even when our hearts are not set apart for the worship of God on Sundays, that's a sin, right? So then you start to think about, okay, so how is uh, um, how am I keeping the Lord's day in my heart? How am I turning my thoughts and my affections towards God on Sundays. And you can see immediately that a number of things really ought to drop off, like NFL. Right? I used to watch NFL all the time. But think about it. How, How can you say that my heart is turned toward God and I'm engaged in His worship and meditating on His creation and His redemption while I watch the New England Patriots win their 400th Super Bowl? Right? So think about it. The goal is that our hearts would be Godward in praise and in worship for the new creation and for the redemption from sin that we have in Christ Jesus all day long. Just as in under the old covenant, all day long, Israel was to be engaged in the worship of God. So it's no less holy. The new covenant Sabbath is no less holy than the old covenant Sabbath. But I want to say this. It is a more joyful Sabbath than the Old Covenant. Simply because there are greater realities. Right? It was a wonderful thing. The Sabbath was a wonderful thing for the Israelites. Because they used to be slaves in Egypt and get up and make bricks without straw on Saturdays. And when God brought them out of Egypt, He said, hey, you don't have to do that anymore. Because now you're free. Right? And so keep this Sabbath day. And give the sojourner within your gates a break too. Don't be like slave drivers because you remember what those slave drivers were like and how unpleasant it was to live under them. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And be a free nation. Every Saturday, everybody takes the day off and worships. The Old Covenant Sabbath was a wonderful thing. 
Right? So we don't want to denigrate it in saying this, but what we want to say is that there are greater realities in the New Covenant. And the New Covenant Sabbath is therefore more joyful. Right? We've probably all heard, well, no, we probably haven't all heard. Some of us have probably heard uh, Tim Keller's uh, four or five minute spiel about um, Jesus is the true and better this and the true and better that, and so on and so forth. And it's a really soul-stirring uh, uh, section both to avoid plagiarism and because I'm not as articulate as Tim Keller, I'm not going to try to give you that same spiel, but the gist of it goes like this. Their redemption was temporal. Right? And Jesus gives us a truer and better redemption that's eternal. Their redemption uh, consisted of the blood of the Passover lamb uh, wiped on the doorposts of their homes. Jesus sacrifices himself. He's the true and better Passover lamb. And his blood is applied to our hearts. Right? God gave them manna from heaven to eat. And Jesus is the true and better bread from heaven. Right? They had high priests who were limited in their service because they were human beings. And they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins first and then for the sins of others. And they were prevented from carrying out their office because they died. But Jesus is the true and better priest who had no sin of his own to atone for but atone for our sins and now always lives to make intercession for us. Right? You understand? John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just a temporary sacrifice. Not just a parochial sacrifice for the people of Israel. But Christ Jesus is sacrifice was once and for all sufficient to take away the sin of all who would believe in Him, to cleanse for all time everyone who would rest upon that one sacrifice. You see, Jesus is the true and better everything that the Old Testament was pointing forward to. And so, celebrating God's work of creation and celebrating God's work of redemption is actually even more joyful under the new covenant than it is in the old because we just got better material to work with. right? Because they knew there was a Messiah and they were saved by grace through faith in the coming Messiah. But we actually know His name. It's Jesus. And He was born in Bethlehem. Right? And He fed the people and ministered to them with such compassion and healed their sicknesses and healed their diseases and wept over the city that stoned the prophets. And then went into that city and suffered outside the gate for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is how the work of new creation and this is how the work of redemption from slavery to sin was accomplished. It's just better material to celebrate week after week. We have more, uh, a greater, clearer picture of God's uh, work and God's purposes and God's plan. And uh, we can just... Praise God with more fullness and more joy from our vantage point in redemptive history than the Israelites ever could under the old. And so, the New Covenant Sabbath is just as holy as the Old Covenant Sabbath. The New Covenant Sabbath is more joyful than the Old Covenant Sabbath. And thirdly, and somewhat redundantly, (coughs) but I just want to drive this point home, the New Covenant Sabbath is a Christ-centered Sabbath. This is not about Moses. This is about Christ. This is about taking one day in seven 
to sing the praises of our Savior, to listen to preaching about our Savior, to read this book that unfolds the story of our Savior and how He has come for sinners like us. The New Covenant Sabbath is about saying, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And when I think that God His Son, not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. This is the flavor of the New Covenant Sabbath. It's about Jesus. It's about Him crucified and resurrected and ascended to heaven for sinners and about the hope that we have that He will return from heaven to bring us to live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth one day forever. This is the flavor of the new covenant Sabbath. It's about Jesus and His new creation. It's about Jesus and His redemption from sin. And so you see that God rested on the seventh day. God commanded Israel to rest on the seventh day. And he was teaching them that what they need to do is every seven days stop and pause and look upward. And worship him. Glory in him for his work of creation and redemption. In the new covenant, the principle carries over. But the details change because of the events that have unfolded in redemptive history. With the advent of Christ. So we still worship every seven days. But now it's the first day instead of the seventh. Because Christ has come. And he accomplished the new creation. And our redemption from slavery to sin on the first day of the week. When they went to the tomb and he wasn't there. Right? And so that's why we worship on the first day of the week. That's why the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath. Sunday. It's just as holy as the Old Covenant Sabbath. It's more joyful than the Old Covenant Sabbath. And it is a Christ-centered Sabbath. What a great Savior we have. What a privilege we have. What a joy we have to come here Sunday by Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, Sabbath by Sabbath, and worship our great Savior. We could spend all our Sabbaths here on earth singing His praise and never exhaust His greatness. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. 